Our scripture this morning is a selection of verses from Romans 8. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, and uh, thank you for having me this morning. I've heard so many great things about this church community, and it really is an honor for me to be here. I have, uh, I have to warn you, however, that uh, I am not a trained theologian, and neither am I an academic, which actually makes it quite interesting that I wound up as a college president. In honesty, the only thing that really credentializes me to be here is that I'm a person who at the end of the day has been transformed by the hope of Jesus. And I wanna to talk to you this morning about hope. Uh, it really is an honor for me to be here because I've heard of so many of the great things that uh, the Kirk community is doing to work towards a world where every heart experiences God's transforming love. I'm also honored to be here because I know that there are many families in this community who are directly connected to Hope College, uh, either as alums, uh, some of you are connected to current or former students, some of you are connected to some of my colleagues. So it's uh, great to know that the Hope College family extends all the way here to Bloomfield Hills, or as we call this uh, whole area on the west side of the state, since you happen to be east of Lansing, Detroit. <laughs> I've been uh, president of Hope for about four years, but since I studied at Hope beginning in 1998, uh, Hope College has been part of my life in one way or another for more than 25 years. And I love the place for many reasons, but at the top of the list is simply the name of the institution. There are 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, and in my opinion, most of them have pretty boring names. Most of them are named after a person or a place not hope. We're named after an ideal. And this ideal, in my opinion, happens to be what the world is desperately in need of today. And of course, we were reminded of that again this week with the terrible news coming out of Michigan State. Every day, it seems, the headlines remind us of the brokenness of this world. And I don't know about you, but I happen to think that maybe underneath the headline problems, is an even bigger problem, which is a lack of hope when it comes to our problems. In other words, a sense in which our problems will always be with us. The world out there is very quick to turn to cynicism and despair, and there's a growing sense in which somehow cynicism is the higher intellectual stance. Well, of course, at hope we don't believe that, and more broadly, as Christians, we don't believe that. So this morning I wanna talk about hope, and I wanna to try to unpack hope by answering three questions. The first question is, what is hope? The second question is, what specifically is the Christian hope? And third, how do we make this hope our own? Three questions, what is hope? What is the Christian hope? And how do we make this hope our own? 
First, what is hope? So before we talk specifically about the Christian hope, let's just get our terms straight so that we understand what we're talking about when we talk about hope, and importantly, what we're not talking about. Because the English word hope has experienced some slippage, some decline. We tend to throw around the word hope in ways that either cause it to get lost in platitudes or it's just diluted. What we're not talking about when we talk about hope is we're not talking about a weak desire or a wish. Like, I hope the weather is good next weekend. Or I hope my bathing suit still fits this summer. Or I hope the Tigers win the World Series. Does hope have to be realistic? At the end of the day, that's not the kind of hope we're talking about. That's a weak version of hope. And when the Bible uses the word hope, that's not the way the Bible is talking about it. If you look up the word hope in a dictionary, you'll see that the first definition of hope is what we were just talking about. It's this weak desire or a wish. The second definition, however, is quite a bit different. The second definition says a confident expectation, trust. And at first, you might feel like those two definitions are related. The second definition might feel like just a stronger version of the first, but actually the two are opposites of each other. Because if you think about it, the defining characteristic of the first definition is uncertainty. Are you sure something is gonna happen? No, you just want it to happen, it might happen. On the other hand, the defining characteristic of the second definition is confidence, not uncertainty. You're sure something is going to happen even though it hasn't happened yet. And this is the kind of hope that the Bible talks about when the Bible uses the word hope. It's referring to this, this confident expectation about the future. And if you have this kind of hope, this confident expectation about, about the future, you can actually experience the present differently, even though the, the thing you're expecting hasn't happened yet. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, gives an illustration for what this can look like. Uh, he says, imagine that there are three people who have the same job to do, and it's a very tedious, very boring job. The job is building widgets in a windowless room. Three people have the same job, but they're told very different things about the future. Person one is told, if you do this job for a year and you don't miss a day, we will pay you $15,000 at the end of the year. Person two is told, if you do this job for a year and you don't miss a day, something good might happen. Person three is told, if you do this job for a year, you will get $5 million. And here's a legal contract, let's sign it and then you can get started. So the first person in that illustration has no hope at all, just despair. The second person has this first kind of hope, this weak desire. But the third person has real hope, true old school biblical hope. The first person in that illustration is gonna show up to work every day hating their life, they're in despair. The second person will have mostly the same experience, but every once in a while they'll have these feelings of like, maybe this will be worth it. Maybe somehow this will all be worth it in the end. But the third person, the third person is gonna to walk to work saying like, this really isn't that bad. The third person is gonna be joyful in their work and it's the same job. That person is doing the same job the other two people are doing, but they're having a totally different experience. Why? Because they have hope. It means that human beings are hope-fueled creatures. We live on hope. We need hope in order to endure hardship. We need hope in order to have a joyful present. Martin Luther King said, everything that's ever been done in the world has been done by hope. Joseph Addison, the 18th century author, said there are three grand essentials to life. Something to do, something to love, and something to hope for. We need hope. It's one of the grand essentials to life and the quality of your hope will determine the quality of your life. 
So that's the answer to the first question, what is hope? And we're saying hope is a confident expectation about the future. Now let's look at the specific Christian hope. What is the specific Christian hope? We said that hope in general stems from your expectation about the future. So to answer the question, what is the specific Christian hope, we have to look at what the Bible says about the future compared to worldly expectations about the future. The world has two overarching philosophies of the future, which stem from two overarching, overarching philosophies of history. One view is that history is cyclical, that it just repeats itself. The other view is that history is linear, that we're heading somewhere. Most ancient cultures believed in a cyclical view of human history. In other words, history just repeats itself. We alternate between good times and bad times, and we're basically stuck in a cycle that we can't get out of. And therefore, the future really holds no hope. There is no happy ending. We're just stuck in this cycle of good and bad times. You may have heard the, uh, the Greek myth, Pandora's box. In the myth, the gods place all the evils of the world in a box. And Pandora's curiosity gets the best of her, so she opens the box, and as she does, all the evils escape into the world. She closes the box just in time to trap one thing in the box. And the one thing that's left trapped in the box is hope. And it leaves us with this haunting question, why in the world was hope in a box of evil? But see, if you believe that there's no happy ending, if you believe that history just cycles between good and bad and we're stuck in this cycle, then hope actually is an evil because it's only gonna set you up for disappointment. Another view of human history is that it's linear. This is the view that began to take shape in the Western world around the time of the Enlightenment. And this is the view that human history is making progress, that we're learning, technology is advancing, and therefore things are getting better. And if you're a secular person and you believe in hope, this is what you have to believe. The problem is it's not realistic because we see evidence all around us pointing to the fact that history isn't exactly getting better. Each generation doesn't necessarily have it better off than generations before them. College students today, for example, will graduate into a much more complicated world than I graduated into 21 years ago. In 1948, C.S. Lewis wrote an essay. The essay was called On Living in an Atomic Age. Of course, that was the first time the world had to face the reality of nuclear war. And he was asked how we should deal with this reality. C.S. Lewis said this, he said, the real answer is that with or without atomic bombs, the whole story is going to end in nothing. Astronomers hold out no hope that this planet is going to be permanently inhabitable. The physicists hold out no hope that organic life is going to be a permanent possibility in any part of the material universe. And not only this earth, but the whole show, all the suns of space are going to run down. Nature is a sinking ship. There really is no hope. Nature does not in the long run favor life. If nature is all that exists, in other words, if there is no God and life of some, or life of some quite different sort outside of nature, then all stories will end in the same way, in a universe from, from which life is banished without the possibility of return. No doubt, atomic bombs may cut short its duration, but the whole thing, even if it lasted for billions of years, must be so infinitesimally short in relation to the oceans of dead time which proceed and follow. It's pretty depressing, but basically what he's saying is that things are not going to end well. Even if you believe in a linear view of human history, this view that we're slowly making progress, Lewis is basically saying we're still screwed because the only possible future we face is annihilation. Whether we do it to ourselves or whether we wait until the sun burns out, there's no hope. 
And that's why Paul begins this passage in Romans 8 by saying creation is groaning, waiting to be liberated from this bondage of decay. See, everything ends in death. And to look at the Christian hope, we have to start by looking at death. And you say, well, that's pretty depressing. But here's the thing. You can't actually talk about hope without talking about death. Viktor Frankl is someone you might be familiar with. Uh, He was a Jewish doctor and a Holocaust survivor. And then he later became one of the most influential psychologists in history. His most important book was called Man's Search for Meaning. And in the book, he makes some fascinating observations about death and hope. In the death camps, he observed how some people responded very differently to death being imminent. He noted that some people just gave up and became despondent. Other people actually became immoral, like they became backstabbers or Nazi informants. Some people, however, became quietly heroic, focusing on helping others and maintaining a sense of joy in the midst of suffering all the way until the end. Frankel became fascinated by this different reaction to death, and he became obsessed with trying to figure out how it could be explained. After years of study, he came to the conclusion that hope offered the explanation. The type of person you became depended on where you place your hope. And he concluded that if you place your hope in something that can be taken away by death, then in the face of death, you despair. So for example, if you place your hope in money, death takes away money. So you despair in the face of death. If you place your hope in family, same thing. Death takes away family. Same with status or title or career success. Death takes all of that away. But if you place your hope in something that death can't take away, you respond very differently to death. And this, of course, is where Christianity comes in. Christianity has something to say about death. Now, to be clear, Christians aren't the only ones who believe in an afterlife. Most religions believe in an afterlife of some sort. But what followers of Jesus have is not just belief in an afterlife. We have proof. We have proof that death isn't the end. See, what Christianity did is move resurrection from this first kind of hope, this weak desire, to the second kind of hope, this confident expectation. Because before Jesus, people wanted to believe in an afterlife, but it was just a wish. It was just a desire. And then on Easter morning, a group of women go looking for a dead body. And instead, they find a stone rolled away and an angel who says, why are you looking for the dead among the living? And I actually think it's easy for us as Christians to misunderstand the meaning of the resurrection. Like the worst way to misunderstand it is to view it as like like a magic trick, like like Jesus as Houdini escaping from death. Another way we can misunderstand it is to interpret the resurrection as Jesus just proving that he's the best, proving that he's the son of God, proving that his enemies won't get the last word. And of course, all of that's true. He is the best. He is the son of God. And his enemies didn't and won't have the last word. But the real meaning of Easter, the real meaning of the resurrection, is that Christianity offers a hope, a hope that nullifies death. That's what Jesus did through the resurrection. Death was nullified. And if that's true, that has universal implications. Because what the Bible says is that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to all of us. It wasn't a one-off event. It's the new template. It's the new pattern for what's going to happen. And this is why Paul says in those verses from Romans 8, he says, we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies in this hope. We were saved. The redemption of our bodies promised by the resurrection of Jesus. That's the hope that saves us. We get physically resurrected bodies. And one of the things I love about this, about the Christian hope, is that unlike counterfeit secular versions of hope, the Christian hope doesn't ignore suffering. The first line of the passage we read, Paul says, I consider our present sufferings. 
He's considering present sufferings. See, the secular hope narrative has brainwashed us into thinking that things ought to just keep getting better, that we're moving from strength to strength. But the Christian hope doesn't ignore current sufferings. It actually realistically acknowledges sufferings. And in fact, God uses sufferings because you can't have a resurrection without dying first. And this is why we can rejoice in suffering, which is exactly what the Bible tells us to do. Christian hope isn't based on a linear view of human history. Neither is it based on a cyclical view of human history. It's based on a V-shaped view of human history because God's go-to move is to bring life out of death. It means death isn't the end, rather it's the planting of a seed. You're going down, but you're coming back up. That's the hope. That's the hope that Christianity offers. So our second question was, what is the specific hope that Christianity offers? And the answer we gave is that Christianity offers true hope, the only true hope, because it offers us a hope that nullifies death and it's promised to us through the resurrection of Jesus. The last question is, how do I make this hope my own? How do I turn this from an idea into something that is really in me, really changes me? And the first thing you have to do, I would suggest, is you just have to get over your doubts. You have to start doubting your doubts. Because a typical educated person hears all of this about the resurrection and life after death and says, that sounds really nice. I wish I could believe in that, but I can't because I'm an educated, rational person. And what I found is that the reason people can't believe in it actually has nothing to do with that. It has nothing to do with the fact that you're an educated, rational person, although you may be at least educated. Because it's not that people have actually looked at all the evidence for and against the resurrection and come to an objective conclusion. Rather, they simply can't believe in the idea of resurrection. They can't believe in the idea of the supernatural and miracles because all of that contradicts their idea of how the world works. The secular story says that this world is all there is. The Christian story says that there's more to this life than this life and everything we do in this life has eternal significance. There's two very different stories of reality, but please don't make the mistake of thinking that one story is based on faith and the other story is based on evidence because both involve evidence and both involve faith. The tendency from one side is to think that all this stuff about life after death and resurrection, it just sounds like a myth. It sounds like a fairy tale. But don't you see? Don't you see that I think your story, that this world is all there is, I think that's a myth. The point is that either story requires some element of faith and there will never be enough evidence on either side to prove that there is or isn't life after death. So what I'm asking you to do to make this hope your own is just doubt your doubts, challenge your beliefs, don't let your doubts be an obstacle. The second thing, and I'll end with this, the second thing you have to do is you just have to own up to your need for a savior. When Paul says we're saved in hope, it's implied that his audience knows we need a savior. And I guess I wonder if that's true of us today. We want hope, our culture wants hope, but do we know we need to be saved? And you ask, saved from what? And the answer, the answer is saved from ourselves. See, when people look at the brokenness of this world, including the very idea of death, the place most people go immediately is they blame God. The most common objection to Christianity that I hear is, I can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. And that, of course, is a big topic, and we don't have time to dive into it. But in short, what the Bible says is that the reason there's death and brokenness in the world isn't God's fault. It's our fault. We're the ones who invited death and suffering into the world. And I admit that's a very offensive idea to most people because at the end of the day, it's a lot easier to blame God than to blame ourselves. But that's simply not what Christianity says. 
We brought sin into the world, and along with sin always comes death. It means it's our fault, and by our fault, it's my fault and your fault. And it's very easy to read the paper and shake your head at all these terrible people. But the Bible says we're all sinners. In fact, it's earlier in the book of Romans when Paul says we're all sinners and the wages of sin is death. But unfortunately, the verse doesn't stop there. It's in Romans 6. It's just two chapters before this, the passage we read. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In other words, we earn death, but we get resurrection as a gift because Jesus conquered death on the cross. But to receive that gift, you have, but to receive that gift and to make this hope your own, you have to admit that you got yourself into a mess that you can't get out of. In other words, the biggest obstacle to true hope is just pride. The mindset that we don't need a savior, but we do, we need a savior. So to make this hope your own, you have to get over your doubts and you have to admit your need for a savior. And then you can have this real hope, this real hope that changes the way we can experience the present. And one of the ways that that changed experience of the present will manifest itself is that we will become people who are not afraid to run toward situations that look hopeless to the world. We will become people who can take action. And at Hope College, we talk about the difference between optimism and hope. And we make a very clear distinction between optimism and hope. And we say that an optimist is actually a lazy person because an optimist is someone who just believes that the world is gonna get better on its own. You don't have to do anything about it. Whereas a hopeful person is an action-oriented person. A hopeful person is someone who believes that we have a role to play. There's a verse in Hebrews 6 that says, the full assurance of hope we have in Christ keeps us from being sluggish. In other words, our hope keeps us from being lazy. Our hope keeps us moving. It keeps us moving because we realize that there is no such thing as a hopeless circumstance. There's only people, there's only people who have lost hope and therefore given up trying to solve the problem. I give you permission. I give you permission to feel hopeless about anything that God feels hopeless about. I have never prayed. I have never prayed and, and had God tell me, even I'm hopeless about this situation. This one's so bad, even I'm hopeless about it. There's no such thing. In Ezekiel 37, God shows Ezekiel a valley of death, the valley of bones. The Bible says they're very dry bones. He shows Ezekiel these bones and he says, what do you think? Can these bones live? Do you see any hope for these bones to have a future? And Ezekiel gives a very safe answer. He says, oh Lord, only you know. And then God says to Ezekiel, he says, you prophesy. You tell these bones they can live. God is saying to Ezekiel, you do something. You take action. You be a person of hope. And so he does. Ezekiel prophesies and the bones come to life. And then God says, these bones represent the people of Israel. They've lost their hope. Their hope is gone, but I want you to go to them and prophesy. See, God wants to do stuff in this world. And to get stuff done, he needs to partner with someone who has hope. And what it means for us is that at the end of the day, it's the people who have the most hope who will have the most influence. And the world out there has lost a lot of hope in recent years. And I believe God is calling us to reclaim hope, to take action, to bring hope to the world and ultimately point people to the true hope that we have in Jesus. Thank you.